Good morning. Our first case is the Society for the Historical Preservation of the 26 North Carolina Troops, Inc. versus City of Asheville in Buncombe County. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is H. Edward Phillips. I represent the appellant, the 26 North Carolina for brevity. I would ask that at the end of this argument that I reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. It's good to be here. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice. Good morning, Associate Justices. Thank you. This case is about three indistinct interrelated issues. The first being North Carolina General Statute 100-2.1, the Monument Protection Act. This act has been at the center of a maelstrom of teeth gnashing and wringing of hands. The second issue is about whether the Society for the Historic Preservation of 26 North Carolina Troops Incorporated, a party to this proceeding having dedicated its civic purpose <clears throat> of preservation of historic artifacts, objects, and historic sites has standing. Standing is had in two ways. One, by the fact that the president of the organization is both a resident and taxpayer of Buncombe County, the county seat being Asheville, who, along with other organization members, not only donated personal funds to the 2015 Vance restoration effort, the organization contracted with the city of Asheville for the entirety of the restoration. That's the record at page 30. Also, the appellant's request for supersedious bond filed on June 28, 2021, in the appellate record. Yet, the city of Asheville would have the court believe that this is merely a donation agreement and that no standing is had as a result. However, the intent of the donor and the donor organizations are quintessential reasons why standing exists. No entity or individuals undertake an extensive restoration of an almost 117-year-old monument with a belief that such restoration is not meant to preserve the restored monument well into the future. This is evident from the words of the plaque commemorating the 2015 restoration, approved as part of the contract, attached to and incorporated in the complaint as Exhibit B. Stated, so that the future may learn from the past, record at page 35. This is exactly the understanding the 26 North Carolina had from the joint solicitation material approved by the city in relation to the Vance Monument, not only part of the past, but our future as well. From Exhibit A to the complaint incorporated therein by reference record page 23. The final issue really comes down to whether political subdivisions of this state and the executive branch are not only bound by the requirements of the Monument Protection Act, but whether these entities will enforce the law, and if not, whether enforcement of the same is available through a private right of action. Nevertheless, whether a private right of action exists may not be controlling as to the contract and subsequent restoration, which may be sufficient to prevent the monument's removal and the destruction by the city of Asheville as partnered with the 26 North Carolina for that restoration. The instant matter can be distinguished from the North Carolina Division United Dollars the Confederacy versus Joins in that there is no debate whether the monument, which is the res of this case, is a public monument dedicated to the specific man who led the state as governor and represented his people in the halls of Congress through the Senate. Further, this matter is not a question of personality and history, personality and history, nor is it a question of whether public policy promulgated by a duly elected state legislature is prudent. Rather, it is whether the law is to be enforced, and if so, can it be done by a private entity which can demonstrate a geographic nexus between its members and the object of remembrance in question? Can also they demonstrate it intended, they intended to restore and conserve the Vance Monument for future generations along with the city of Asheville through the language of the contract entered into with the city of Asheville? 
Council, you, you mentioned things attached to the complaint. Is the contract attached to the complaint? Yes, it is, Your Honor. And I, isn't our our law says that uh, uh, in a Rule 12b6 motion, right. failure to state a claim in a contract case, there, if the contract's attached to the complaint, just like you'd normally be constrained to the four corners of the complaint, right. it expands to include the contract. So you can decide a 12b6 motion in a contract claim by looking at the contract saying it's clear what the contract means here and then entering a judgment saying you didn't state a claim because there's no breach you allege breach of contract but there isn't one based on the contract would you agree that that can happen under our law so in most cases like that you need to go to summary judgment with the contract being attached we went to hearing on april 12th on the motion to dismiss i had two witnesses ready to go but was denied the ability to move them forward. It was just really oral argument. And I thought there were more factual issues that really needed to be discussed. One of those folks was the restoration, you know, one of the people from the restoration group that restored the monument. The other was my client, who is the, is the current president, was the president of the 26th North Carolina, having insight into the contract and what they intended. I think the argument we're going to hear from your friend for the city is that uh, you can rule at 12B6 on a contract claim if the contract, if you allege the existence of a contract, then the contract is attached to the complaint because you can look to that then you're not just limited to the allegations of the complaint. The trial court did that because you can see in its order it has two separate parts. It has a standing analysis and then a 12B6 analysis. Correct. And then the case comes up to the appellate courts and it's now here before this court and there's no real argument that the, on the 12B6 contract claim and under Rule 28 of of our rules, so that would mean that that issue is abandoned. And if that's an independent basis to rule on the contract claim, it just means it's not before us. So I think we're going to hear that argument from your friend. What What's your response? My response is, first, the city of Asheville, from a factual basis, they said it was the four corners of the contract, not the attachments to the contract. So their argument, that's always been put forward before the Superior Court, the Court of Appeals, is the four corners. Exhibit A was the attachment to the contract, which was a scope of work, and laid out specific requirements from both parties. I have always contended from the very beginning of this case that that is, in fact, part of the contract. Judge Thornburg, no matter if I argued that, I think that Asheville's position had won the day and that they were saying, well, it's, it's only this four corners of the original contract, not this exhibit attached there, too, even though the contract's been notarized, signed by both parties, et cetera. So, I understand exactly what you're saying in terms of 12b-6 and Rule 28, but I think at the end of the day that the full contract was not considered as part of the deliberative process. So are, there, are you saying there's some portion of the contract that was not in the record before the trial court when it, it ruled? It was in the record, but based on Asheville's argument, the city had said it was only these four corners and not that attachment. So that's what I understood them to argue, and that's I, I can't assume what Judge Thornburg did, but I would have to believe that if he accepted the argument of the city of Asheville, that series constrained by those four corners and not the attachments. And I think the attachments were really important. That's one of the reasons I'm here. And so your argument is the attachment, including the design of the plaque on record page 35, create was the city promising to keep that, that monument up forever and for always? Well, I wouldn't say forever and for always, but here's what I'd say. They also did a time capsule, too, and that's also mentioned within scope A, you know, scope of work, attachment A to the contract. 
And so this time capsule, they went in, took the old capsule out, conserved the material therein, put some of those materials back into a new time capsule, and were going to open it on the 100th anniversary of the restoration, which would have been May 16, 2115. So if they didn't have an intent to preserve it going forward into the future, that distant into the future, at least 100 years, then what was their intent? So what they're saying is, is that, okay, we're looking at this monument and we're looking at this contract and there's no way we can be required to hold it in perpetuity. And they went under exception C3 of the Monument Protection Act, right? By saying, well, it presented a threat to the public health and safety, right? However, the problem with that is, is that when you look at that issue in particular, you see that, you know, on the plain language of the statute, there has to be a building inspector or similar official, right, government official, who signs off saying it's a public threat. But a public threat means that if a building inspector is looking at a monument and realizing that this monument is so deteriorated and has reached its final end, this is the end of, you know, stage of its usefulness, then they will come in and say, well, it needs to come down because it's basically collapsing in on itself. And in 2008, the city of Asheville had hired a conservator who was to review some of the properties and study those properties and see their conditions, a few historic properties, as well as the Vance Monument. And that conservator, within their report, which is mentioned throughout the pleadings, they came in as well and they said, well, if this is not taken care of, you have water penetration, you have other issues coming, and if you don't take care of it, it could lead to structural instability. Which again, goes back to the contract. Because in 2012, my client, based on that conservative report, decided they wanted to work and begin the process of looking at how to take this project on. So they did that. And it culminated in the 2015 contract because they knew if the Vance Monument wasn't you know, basically restored and made better through the restoration process because the technology and the materials being used are better than they were back in 1898 or when they tried to do some repairs in the early 1970s. However, what it came down to was is that it took potential liability exposure away from the city. I mean, what, if, what happened if one of the blocks on the top had fallen off or something had happened where it deteriorated or a chip could have hit somebody or the capstone, well not capstone, but it's actually a metal cap. But if that fell off and hit somebody and you know, it's even kind of borne out because when they were deconstructing the monument for the purpose of destroying it, demolishing it, they got to a certain point at the deconstruction process, a little more than halfway down, where they had to start cutting the blocks out with a saw, right, through the mortar. And that's how well it was restored. And so it wasn't this easy process, and I don't think that two parties go through this kind of, uh, you know, contract and review process in order to come in and say at the end of the day, oh, well, we didn't mean for it to be here forever. But there's a mergers clause in the contract, isn't there? If I remember correctly, and this is off the top of my head, I cannot recall, and I, I apologize, Associate Justice Riggs, it's just one of those things I can't remember. Okay. And do you, what is your understanding of the implication of a merger's clause in a contract in North Carolina? You know, again, I haven't thought that through, and I apologize, but in my understanding of a merger's clause, everything within the contract, all the components of that contract, every single statement made therein is it. That's all that exists, is those four corners which again include the attachments. And those four corners, if you don't find anything in there, then you can potentially be out of luck because the court could say, well, it's not there, so it was never bargained for. 
But what I'm saying is there's indicia of that intent within the scope of the work because they want the 26 North Carolina to raise the funding. They told them on the front end, we will give you $11,000 as soon as you sign this contract, this donation agreement, as they call it. And then once we do that, we will come in and. Well, it's uh, actually, yeah. it's marked a donation agreement. I mean, it, it's what its title is, right? It is, but it's the easy way to get away from liability or, or any potential future requirement. Your client si signed that agreement, right? I understand that, but here's where it comes down to. There's an indemnification clause. In any donation agreement, there's not an indemnification clause, right? Because you're not going to indemnify the city and hold them harmless and defend them in court if something happens. That is not a provision within a donation agreement. Typically, a donation agreement, as I understand, would be, let's say there's a rich philanthropist here in Raleigh, and he has a couple of Picassos. And of course, the North Carolina Museum of Art is just up the road, and he decides, I want to do this either as a testamentary gift or an inter vivos gift to the museum. So that is a gift, that's a donation, right? And then in the museum, five years after his death, even though that was his favorite Picasso painting, they decide they can get a Cezanne, a Rembrandt, or whatever they can by selling the Picasso. And so they can sell the Picasso, it was a gift. Whereas this, this is a restoration. You have to have insurance, you have to comply with OSHA requirements. That's not donative, right? That's not part of a donation agreement. You have to hold us harmless, take on responsibility for liability, all these things. And then on top of that, we are doing things at the monument site. We're restoring the wrought iron fence. We're paying for the rededication ceremony. We're permitting this joint solicitation material, which has in there language concerning the fact that the Vance Monument had been around for years. We want it to be here for years to come, right? Language to that effect. And that's exhibit A to the complaint, which I can't remember which record page that is, and I apologize. So, that being said, I Before think Before you move on, yes. just real quickly, I th heard you say that on record, uh, record page 30 is where you have an allegation of that the president is a resident and a taxpayer. Did I hear you correctly? Uh, yes, and- And I see his address. I don't see any allegation that he's a taxpayer. No, I understand that. But Weaverville is in Buncombe County. If the court wants to take judicial notice of that fact, they can, but it is in fact in Buncombe County. So there's no factual allegation that he's a taxpayer. We no, would there's not. We have to take judicial notice of that. I understand that. And it's a presumption that because he's in Weaverville, he's paying taxes in Buncombe County and in the city of Asheville as well. So that being said, and I agree with you, but when you attach you know, the, the contract to the complaint, and you mention within the allegations within the complaint that it's attached here to as Exhibit B, and it's incorporated herein by reference. When you have that language in there, that language from this contract goes into that complaint. It becomes the allegations of the complaint under subtle law in North Carolina. So if I can understand, yes, make sure I understand your argument. Are you saying that the contract that was signed by the city of Asheville obligated the city to keep this monument in place for a hundred years or what term of years? Well, until at some point, I mean, conceivably, if they re restored it again, they could keep it even longer. Right, well, and that is actually part of my question. Right. If this is a contract that, that represents a meeting of the minds, right. um, what further obligations do you contend the city of Asheville agreed to incur over the period of time that you're now saying they agreed to maintain the statute? Well, what I'm saying is their intent at the beginning was a restoration 
so it will be preserved for the future. Right, but Whatever. it's the language of the contract that we are, that the, that the trial court interpreted when it said that the obligations of any potential agreement have been fulfilled. And I understand that, and that was a position taken by the city of Asheville. And I don't think that obligation, the, the future obligation, the existence of this restored monument, I don't think that that was ever, uh, well, let me back up. It was a question that Judge Thornburg really never got to because despite my argument to the contrary and the fact that you have you know, a good faith obligation at the beginning when you enter into a contract that you're bargaining in good faith, right? But, but if, if this contract, if the city of Asheville understood itself to be obligated to maintain this monument for a specific period of time, wouldn't the agreement need to say that? I wouldn't think so because, for example, I know I'm coming with examples. Let's say someone has a 1958 Ferrari 250 SWB GT Roadster, and it's a 65-year-old vehicle, and they spend, let's say, $250,000 restoring it because it's worth $2.8 So they restore it. Their intent on restoration is to keep it, you know, preserved. They use it sparingly. It's in a climate-controlled garage, right? And they've restored it, so that means they have at least a vision that this will go into the future, well into the future, barring any unforeseen accident or act of God. So, you know, the whole effort of restoration is not to say, oh, well, just, we'll just repair things and, and call it a day. Restoration in and of itself, because it says pay for the restoration within the contract, a restoration by definition is something that is done to preserve and conserve an object going into the future. But why isn't the restoration obligation in the contract fulfilled when the statute is restored? Because of the fact that when they come in, and see this goes back to 100-2.1, right? But, but, so, but, but let me ask you about that, because you're asking us to read into this contract a law that was passed after the contract was signed. That's true, but it's still applicable, though. I mean, even though the legislature has set up a policy where they said you cannot remove an object of remembrance, under, especially under subsection B, where they come in and say, okay, it's fine. You can move it temporarily to take care of issues, construction, whatever it may be, or you can move it permanently so long as you meet these requirements set forth under the statute. Similar prominence, visibility, access, et cetera, honor, right, all those things. And so even though this, the contract was entered into in 2015, the law was went into effect, if I remember correctly, the summer of 2015, a couple months later. Just because you have an object of remembrance, let's say somebody put up a, a memorial to um, Thomas Jefferson, and they want to take it down. And that monument was put up, let's say, 1830, somewhere in North Carolina, because they really like Thomas Jefferson. So just because it existed all this time prior to the enactment of the law, and there may have been any restoration that happened to it, who knows when, the law still applies. And you can't get past the fact that the law applies. So either way, I believe that the city of Asheville has an obligation under the contract because restoration in and of itself doesn't mean that, oh, well, we restored it. You're not going to do anything. You know, you, you're going to destroy it in five years. Great. But see, this is the other part of it, too. And under so, what, I'm sorry, before yeah. you move on to the other part, on the application of the statute, is my understanding the city of Asheville owns the statute. Is that correct? That is correct. And the general statutes, 100-2.1, say that a monument, memorial, or work of art owned by the state right. may not be removed. Well, that's under subsection A, but subsection B, I would bring the court's attention to, 
So here is where we come in. And if I remember correctly, the circumstances under which an object of remembrance may be relocated are either following. When appropriate measures are required by the state or political subdivision of the state to preserve the object. Right, but that doesn't say that the entire statute applies to all uh, objects of remembrance owned by every political subdivision. The first section is the section that requires approval. The second section um, gives um, the limitations and the type of approval required, but the entire statute applies to works of art owned by the state. Well, I respectfully disagree. Subsection A tells you what the, the step that the state has to take. So, for example, like the monuments in Raleigh that were taken down, they have to have approval by the, tenant, uh, the North Carolina Historical Commission, sorry. And to my knowledge, that approval's not yet been given. So they're still out, but the state had to do that. But they took them down first, and then they went in and applied before the Historical Commission. That's a requirement of the state. But to me, a political subdivision state, if you have a monument that is on public property, it's a public monument, the legislature intended, I believe, to set forth under subsection B that if you're going to remove a monument and you're a political subdivision state, these are the requirements you have to meet. So they're not saying you have to go to court. They're not saying you have to go to the North Carolina Historical Commission. All they're saying is these are the requirements you have to meet, which is moving it to a place of similar prominence, honor, access, et cetera. Counsel, before yes. you go too far down the... What's Rabbit hole. The, the, yeah, well, the, the statutory language, I think, is the standing right. issue. I, I wanted to circle back to my yes, first question. So. You just spent about 20 minutes answering Justice Riggs and Justice Earl's questions making your contract argument. At, right. The thing I want to understand is I think your friend is going to stand up in a minute and say, you made those arguments to the trial court and you lost. Then you made those arguments to the Court of Appeals and you lost on the merits of the Rule 12b6 ruling. Right. And then if you open the new brief before this court, right. there's no discussion of the contract argument, only the standing argument. And our rules of appellate procedure say if you don't make an argument in your brief like that, you've abandoned it. So I think your friend's first argument is gonna be, we don't even need to talk about the contract issue. It's been abandoned, it's not before us, that ruling must be affirmed. So what, what is your response to that argument, which I think we'll hear in a minute? And again, I, I just can't recall off the top of my head every single page of the brief, and I apologize. And I'm not saying you didn't go through it to, you know, for the fine tooth comb. Um, I don't think we've abandoned the argument because standing relies on one of two things. The one avenue is the contract itself, and the other avenue is the application of the Modern Protection Act. So this is the issue I'm going to talk to your friend about as well, because right. I think both the trial court and the Court of Appeals have, you're, you're right, they've conflated two different issues. So if you come into court and say, uh, I'm a private citizen or organization, I had a contract with the government, and the contract breached, the government breached the contract. Right. You have standing. That you have standing under the breach of contract claim. That's and right. the idea that you wouldn't have standing there is completely inconsistent with a long line of cases about standing. But the trial court said, uh, didn't, wasn't focused there on you not have standing on the contract claim. It said you didn't state a claim on which relief can be granted and dismissed it on the merits under Rule 12b-6. And I think that's the thing. Is that, so we're not talking about standing with the contract claim. You, the trial court entered an order saying that claim failed as a matter of law. So, you know, what, what argument did you make to this court in the brief to rebut that ruling? I have less than seven minutes on rebuttal. So if I may come back to you on rebuttal, if that's okay. Sure. Thank you. 
Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the FLE. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may it please the court. My name is Eric Edgerton. I'm a senior assistant city attorney with the city of Asheville, the defendant appellee in this matter. Um, Justice Dietz, I'll, I'll accept your projection. In fact, I am going to argue at, at some point that contract issues are really not any longer before this court, given the unambiguous conclusions of the trial court and the court of appeals. And for that reason, I am going to speak somewhat on the the specific issues of standing that are raised <clears throat> and predominantly discussed in the party's gri uh, briefs. And in that regard, I'd suggest that there's one overarching question that would be helpful for this court to keep in mind as it works through those issues. And that, that question is, will you take the plaintiff appellant at its word? And that's a relevant question because from March 31st of 2021 to April 20th of 2022 in submissions to the trial court, the court of appeals and this court the plaintiff appellant spent more than a year telling the courts of this state variations on the following, and I quote, the issues raised in the present case are virtually identical to those raised in that certain case now pending before the North Carolina Supreme Court entitled United Daughters of the Confederacy, North Carolina Division v. Winston-Salem, end quote. Now that's a representation that the plaintiff appellant made in a motion to the Court of Appeals, but it was more specific in its statements to the trial court. It told the trial court, that it was specifically the issues of standing that were identical, not almost identical in that instance, literally identical between uh, the United Daughters case and our own. It went on to state, to state to the trial court that whatever the outcome in United Daughters, that outcome would be determinative of the necessary outcome in this, in this case. Now those representations appear at page 59 and page 67ZZ of the record respect, respectively. Uh, it's only now with the benefit of this court's decision in United Daughters in hand that they seek to reverse course completely and argue in their briefing, no, no, that case is in fact so different that you need not pay too much attention to that case that you decided last term, finding that a historical group like the plaintiff appellant in this case lacks standing to challenge the removal of a monument. So counsel, can I ask you a question about the, the first claim for cause of action in the complaint is a breach of contract claim. Is it the city's position that there's no standing to assert that breach of contract claim? Your Honor, there, it, it is interwoven with the issue of standing generally, even under the, the portions seeking to raise a claim under the Monuments Protection Act. I think you can justifiably conclude that there is a lack of standing to bring the contracts claim under a very different rationale than, than the rationale that goes to standing under the Monuments Protection Act. And that would be from the standpoint of it's a completed contract. It's a, it's a document that, it's a, it's a contract that had been completed and is no longer in existence. And from that standpoint, I think you could characterize it fairly as a lack of standing to advance those claims. But don't we, we hold that we determine standing at the time of the filing of the complaint. So, at the time of the filing complaint, taking the allegations in the claim is true. Uh, the, the, the contract is not completed. That was the so. In order to reach that conclusion, and you know, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. I, I, and I think you're right that the contract issue is not in this case anymore. But if that were the allegation, then they're standing. And the question of whether or not the what the contract requires that's a merits question. To, to bring so what concerns me is you could take the Court of Appeals holding in this case and expand it out to all sorts of other scenarios that don't have anything to do with the sort of subject matter in this case, where just some person or some organization has an agreement with the government and they try to come to court and say, 
you know, the government made a promise to me. We had consideration. It's a binding contract. The government didn't do what they were supposed to do, and I want to sue about it. And the Court of Appeals is going to start telling people, sorry, you don't have standing to sue the government on a breach of contract claim. And that, that just seems odd to me. If you say there's a contract in the complaint, why isn't that enough to create the standing? Yes, Your Honor. And so there are the two bases for dismissal of the contract claim in this case. One was on standing, and the other was on 12b-6 as opposed to 12b-1. And so on the 12b-6 issue, both the trial court and the Court of Appeals did work through those. The Court of Appeals analysis on the 12b-6 issue appear, and I, I believe it's the final six paragraphs of its opinion, they conclusively state that under Rule 12b-6, because it was a completed contract, there's no basis and no ability to state a claim. If they went through that, that process of working through the 12b-6 analysis, concluding that there was no longer an active contract, they have also necessarily reached a legal conclusion that it's a completed contract. So I think we're then past the, the allegations being accepted as true in the complaint that Your Honor is referring to. So I think this is a bit unique because the Court of Appeals did, in fact, work through both of those channels, the 12b-6 and the 12b-1. Well, you could do that. You could have an alternative holding that says there's no standing, also you lose on the merits. Yeah. And, 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 but and in future cases, in a published decision, both of those alternative holdings are controlling. So it's not like you're choosing one and saying we'll follow this one, not the other. And so my point is a reader of the opinion could say there's a holding here that when you file a lawsuit that says I'm a private citizen, I had a contract with the government, I now want to sue the government, they breached the contract, there's no standing for you to do that, to come to court and do that. that that's what I'm getting at. So don't, don't we need to correct that um, sort of misunderstanding of how our standing doctrine works? Of course, as you asserted, the contract claim, uh, you know, you, you will win on that anyway, but don't we need to fix that? If, if Your Honor chooses to make modifications to the rationale of the Court of Appeals below on the question of standing as it relates to the contract claim, um, I, I'm certainly in no position to discourage you otherwise. That might be a fair, that might be a fair and legitimate concern. Even if you excise that entire portion of the Court of Appeals opinion, dismissal remained proper under its 12b6 analysis. Um, and so continuing on with the, the issue of standing that as it relates not to the contract claim necessarily, but more to the declaratory judgment action uh, portion of the complaint, um, this court has done a considerable amount of work over the past two to three years, especially on developing the jurisprudence on the issue of standing, beginning with the, the Dan Forrest Commission to uh, reelect Dan Forrest case and proceeding through. Uh, to decisions issuing even this year. And so the current standard is now unambiguous. There's no longer a direct injury requirement uh, in order to bring a case under the Declaratory Judgment Act in North Carolina. But there is, however, a requirement that a plaintiff be able to demonstrate that there is a specific legal right that they have created by a statute that is being infringed by the government in order to have standing. That's not present in this case. And so the, the Court, this court in the United Daughters matter um, all but explicitly said there's no private cause of action under General Statute 100-2.1. It also caveated that even if there were, even if there were a express or implied cause of action, the plaintiff lacked standing to be able to bring such a, uh, a cause of action. So, so I'm, I'm interested in how you you phrase that, particularly in light of the point Justice Dietz made about uh, alternative holdings. Did we hold in Daughters of the Confederacy that there's no uh, private right of action under the Monument Protection Act, or did we simply express skepticism about whether there's such a 
cause of action? Your Honor, I believe it's the latter, and that's why uh, shortly before today, I believe it was on Monday of this week, we've provided a supplement of additional authority to the court, setting out the two decisions of the Court of Appeals, which following up on this court's decision in United Daughters, which I believe you have accurately characterized as expressing doubt as to whether there's a private cause of action under 100-2.1, the Court of Appeals then took up that question and answered it conclusively, that there is no private cause of action. And now, I don't- Well, conclusively for the Court of Appeals, but- That's correct, Your We're Honor. not bound by that. Of course not, Your Honor. Um, I will say that any, as close as this court has come to endorsing any theory of how an implied cause of action might uh, come about as a result of a statute, if you use any of those rationales, um, this court seemed to endorse the rationales that the Court of Appeals has previously used to determine whether there's an implied uh, cause of action created by a statute. None of those standards would be satisfied by General Statute 100-2.1. They hinge on whether there is some specific action that is required that only a private suit could fulfill. And that's just simply not the case in this matter. And so under that rationale, uh, the courts of appeals have now conclusively said for them that there is no private cause of action. And that's consistent with every analysis of the concept of private causes of action that this court has, uh, has discussed in the past. I'd point to the concurring opinion of the chief, chief justice in the Dan Forrest case, for instance, where there the, uh, concurrent, the concurrence in the outcome was based on the fact that the statute at issue had an explicit cause of action, private cause of action. And there's a thorough discussion of when the General Assembly can create these types of private attorney general's actions, where individual citizens are Im imbued with the authority to bring actions challenging government um, decisions based on the explicit statements of the General Assembly, and that is not present here. The Monument Protection Statute does not convey upon any individual citizen the ability to sue. So who would have <clears throat> who would have standing, or is it simply, in your view, unenforceable? No, Your Honor, it's not unenforceable. I believe it, it would be unambiguously the providence of the Attorney General in this state would be able to sue to enforce and uh, seek to enjoin violations of General Statute 100-2.1. Um, I'd also add that... Has the Attorney General taken any such action to your knowledge? I, I, do, not, I do not have any knowledge of a specific instance. The answer to Your Honor's question more fully, though, would be that that's not necessarily dispositive of what should happen or what will happen. This court has uh, at least strongly intimated that a citizen could bring a mandamus action against the Attorney General to force them to uh, sue in an instance where they had opted not to. That's not what the plaintiff appellant did in this case, but it would remain a viable option for someone in the future who was seeking to uh, effectuate the enforcement of the Monument Protection Statute, but did not do so through a private action where, of course, there is none authorized by that statute. Um, the secondary answer to your question of whether the Attorney General has pursued that as a, as a cause of action in previous instances is that uh, in addition to the fact that they could and that a citizen could conceivably force them to, there's also the option of the General Assembly taking action. So this court's decision in the United Daughters case was handed down on December 16th, 2022. The Court of Appeals decisions that I've been referring to previously where it was expre expressly held that there is no private cause of action under 100-2.1 came out on May 2nd of 2023 and then again on Second was August 15th of 2023. The General Assembly was in session until literally exactly a week ago on the 25th. 
So you're making a, a sounds like a legislative acquiescence argument, but don't we usually look for a longer period of time uh, before we find legislative acquiescence? I'm not necessarily stating that there is legislative acquiescence. The question was, is the is section 100-2.1 fatally flawed in some way? Um, my, my first answer, answer 1A is always going to be no. There's, a, there's an entity and an individual who could seek to enforce it and there's a mechanism by which citizens of this state could force that individual to uh, effectuate the purpose of that statute if they weren't happy with it. Answer 1B is going to be that if there is a fatal flaw, which I don't believe there is, it's always capable, the legislature is always capable of correcting such a flaw. And in instances where that is a necessary step, it should be left to the legislature to correct it rather than having any sort of judicial saving of a statute if it is fatally flawed, which again, I don't believe it is. I believe there is a, a viable enforcement mechanism. Has uh, the city of Asheville, in your view, uh, complied with the Monuments Protection Act? Yes, Your Honor, and I'll, and I'll caveat that again by saying that no court has ever considered that question. So the trial court, having decided that under Rule 12b-1 and 12b-6, there was no need to proceed with the case, did not reach that. Of course, the Court of Appeals then did not reach it either. Not dodging the question, however, I will answer Your Honor directly. Yes, I believe the city has. And so the standards that are applicable under the Monuments Protection Act, if it applies in this instance, are that a uh, city can remove a monument on the basis of public safety um, after determining that there is a risk to the public. Um, that determination is not expressly limited to determinations by building inspectors. They're, it's not limited to building safety issues. It is just a statement that it can be removed for public safety. Now, again, Your Honor, I'd, because this has never been considered by a court, there's not been a complete formulation of any sort of record on this point. So I'm, I'm, I'm venturing out on a, limb, uh, on a limb slightly here, but to the extent that this court has doubts about the sincerity of the city of Asheville's determination that there was a public safety risk created by the continued existence of that monument in the center of downtown Asheville, I think that the court would find instructive the fact that in, in July of last year, it was the target of a bombing that was severe enough that the FBI was required to investigate. Now again, that's admittedly not in the record because the, no court has ever gone there, but to doubt the sincerity of the city of Asheville and whether they were correct that this is a public safety risk is one thing, but if, if we're going to go there, we also need to look at the actual factual reality on the ground where it, it has been the target of violent acts as a result of, of its existence. So I do believe that for a court to ever get into the meat of whether or not the monument protection statute has been complied with, I, I would confidently be able to stand and tell any tribunal considering that, yes, I believe so. So the only additional um, argument that I wish to present to the court, and uh, I'm reticent to do so if in fact we are all in agreement that the contract claim is, is dead and gone and not, and not before the court anymore, but under the assumption that it is still even hypothetically viable. I'm sorry, before you go back to the yes. contract claim, I want to, I just want to explore a little further the question of whether or not there's a private right of action under this statute and um, the extent to which the logic of the UDC opinion um, has some force. And I, I appreciate, I understand that your argument is that the court did not 
definitively say in that opinion, but, but there is certainly some discussion and some analysis of whether or not there would be a private right of action under the statute. And I guess my question for you is, is there any weakness or any, any error in the court's analysis of why um, there, there's, the, in the court's language, we are unable to identify anything in the statute that explicitly authorizes the assertion of a private cause of action? No, there, none, Your Honor. There, there's, there's nothing wrong with the court's analysis in the United Daughters case. The reason that I had to answer Justice Allen truthfully in the way that I did is that there, there's just enough caveats on, well, if no explicit one, then what about implicit? No, but then also this plaintiff, we don't even need to decide that because this plaintiff would have lacked standing. So there's some equivocating, but Your Honor is correct. The court did delve into what considerations are appropriate in determining whether there's either an explicit cause of action or an implicit cause of action. It had to rely on some case law developed by the Court of Appeals, but it didn't fault that rationale. And if you apply that rationale to the, the statute at issue here, 100-2.1, there can be no contention that there is an implicit cause of action authorized in it. It, it simply does not require a, a private action in order to be effectuated. Um, it, and I assume you, you also agree, if, if we conclude there's no standing on that statutory claim, there's no need for us to get into the private cause of action question. That, that issue would not be justiciable if at the front end we're saying there's actually, there's, there's, this party has no standing to pursue that anyway. I agree, Your Honor, and it is a, it is a semi-interwoven issue. I think that you could characterize the absence of a private, private cause of action in a statute as also going to standing. Um, I, I don't think you need to, though. I don't think you need to weigh in on either of the opinions of the Court of Appeals below, because on the facts of this case, applying the rationale that this court set forth in United Daughters, there, there's no conceivable argument that the plaintiff has standing. You've, you've gone through and challenged the, the contentions that uh, the counsel for the plaintiff appellant made today about what is the best source of evidence that he's alleged either the identity of the membership of his, his uh, client organization, where they live, whether they are taxpayers, and they amount to a statement in a document attached to a complaint that says, we have members all over the state of North Carolina, and, and that this one individual with a mailing address in the town of Weaverville signed this agreement. I, I suppose if this court were willing to entertain those as actual factual allegations, um, we can go into that. The issue there is, of course, that that is something that was attached to a contract in 2014 that at least has a half decade of age on it in terms of what its membership was back in 2014. Um, the second concern, of course, is that that's not presented as, uh, as a factual allegation. It's incorporated by reference by stating that this was the, these are the materials that we handed out when we were trying to raise funds. It's not, identified as here are here's a document that includes our membership roles where they where what our membership criteria is where our members addresses is it's nothing like that it's a vague statement included in a brochure that was handed out in the course of fundraising so all of those uh, all of those facts the fact that there is nothing in the complaint or attached to the complaint that would allow this court to conclude anything about the membership of the plaintiff appellant that's exactly the basis upon which both the majority opinion in the daughter, United Daughters case found that uh, there was no standing for the plaintiff appellant in that matter, and the concurrence. The concurrence also said that 
in instances like that where you can't tell anything from the allegations in the complaint about the membership, uh, the membership criteria or where its members reside, that's, that's necessarily insu an insufficient set of allegations to conclude that that organization has standing. And, and that's entirely consistent with this court's precedent on associational standing. Associational standing requires, as a threshold matter, the ability to find that individual members of an association have standing to bring a claim. If we're dealing with a statute that doesn't authorize a private cause of action, that's always gonna be a problematic uh, criteria for the plaintiff appellant to meet but they certainly haven't made an attempt to meet that criteria, having not presented this court, uh, court of appeals or the trial court with any allegations about the nature or composition of its membership. Um, so that's a, a long-winded answer to address the, the facts as, as uh, alleged in the complaint. The, uh, returning to the contract issue, the one additional point that I had mentioned I would like to make is that uh, we've talked about the total absence of any express condition or a requirement in the contract that the city of Asheville maintain the monument in place for all of eternity. That's unambiguous. There's nothing in the complaint that anyone could point to or ask about that suggests an obligation to maintain the monument in place for all time. The only argument that I could conceivably think of that has not been made by the plaintiff appellant would be to uh, suggest that maybe the covenant of good faith and fair dealing is so expansive that in this case, it requires the city, even though nobody agreed to it, to maintain a, uh, a monument in place for all time. I don't know that that's an argument that this court would be willing to entertain, but I, given the possibility of that argument, I just wanna set out clearly that no argument regarding the implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing would allow for the conclusion that the city is bound for all time to maintain a monument in place. This court, in a, de a decision issued on September 1st of this year, reaffirmed that this court, quote, this court will not utilize the nebulous covenant of good faith and fair dealing to rewrite a contract that a plaintiff now believes to have been a bad deal. That applies here. There is no ability to read in a term into that contract that the plaintiff appellant had an opportunity to request did not request and does not appear in the contract that he contends has uh, some indication that they have a sufficient legal right to come before this court and ask to challenge the removal of a monument. That's simply not present in the contract either expressly and it cannot be found Im impliedly because that is just simply not what this court does in construing the covenant of good faith and fair dealing. Let, uh, me, let me ask you this, do, do you think that the the, the plaintiff organization would have entered into the agreement uh, had it thought that the monument would be removed in five years? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not able to go with in the head of this organization and, and know what it thought. Um, I know that it had the ability to request that. Um, but isn't the very nature of a monument that it's gonna last? Could. Uh, monuments it could. Are, also, are also removed, um, and mm. as sensibilities change, they are removed. And in this instance, um, finding that there was a public safety risk generated because of exactly who this monument represented, it was determined that for the interest of public safety, it needed to be removed. Um, the idea that that a 
donation to a cause to restore anything gives an individual or a group an everlasting and permanent right to challenge anything that would subsequently happen to whatever was restored is not consistent with the principle that parties are bound to what they chose to put within a contract. And that contract is before the court as it was before the trial court. Um, so the last argument that I would make in my remaining six minutes is just on the basis of why this court's precedent in United Daughters, having gone over why it applies conclusively to state that there is no uh, standing for the plaintiff appellant, why that holding should not be abandoned by this court. Um, this court has outlined in the past instances in which precedent may be abandoned. And so I'm specifically referring to uh, the, the, the opinion from State v. Balance, 1949 opinion of this court. Um, there it set forth the fact that precedent may be abandoned in certain instances and noted that, that it can be done where uh, it is a single standalone case that is much weakened by a, uh, an, a dissent of acknowledged force. Um, in this case, it is not a single standalone case. It is the direct product, the United Dollars case is the direct product product of the Committee to Reelect Dan Forrest case. Um, it is, it, the principles stated in United Daughters have been uh, subsequently reaffirmed by this court in the community. Success initiative be, be more. Um, it's not a single standalone case. Moreover, there is no dissent. There is a concurrence that under the express terms of that concurrence would hold that the plaintiff appellant in this case lacks standing to advance the claims that it has tried to advance. So for that reason, we would urge that the court continue to adhere to the precedent established by United Daughters and apply, whether it chooses the majority opinion or the concurrence, the rationale contained therein, which does not allow for the conclusion that the plaintiff appellant in this matter has standing to bring the claims they tried to bring. Now, if there are no other questions, I'll sit. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Justice, thank you again, Associate Justices. Um, Associate Justice Dietz, here's where I want to go into my brief that's before this court. I do not believe we abandoned the contract claim. On page six, you will re see reference to the contract. You will see that uh, we allege again that this was a binding contract, and we even lay out the provisions of that contract within the context of the brief. Then again, and this is skipping around because I was looking for it. Um, we also go into the contract again on page 24. So I don't believe we've abandoned that claim. Now, in relation to a private right of action, in relation to the Attorney General, I can tell you for a fact the Attorney General has never raised a finger to deal with monument issues in this state whatsoever. And the executive branch has blithely ignored the legislature. Matter of fact, as alleged in my complaint, if I remember correctly, in the summer of 2020, June specifically, uh, Governor Cooper had said in a tweet, had the General Assembly repealed their law of 2015, none of this would have happened last night in Raleigh, right? So the executive branch has no desire to enforce this law through the Attorney General, through the Governor's office, anything. That's my opinion and my belief. And going back the, to- the, the, yes, Before you go on though, although I, I think it's correct that um, Daughters of the Confederacy doesn't absolutely close the door on the private right of action. <clears throat> I do think, well, where's the reasoning wrong in that case? The, the reasoning of the opinion certainly points to 
there not being a private right of action. And I certainly understand that. And going back to the statements also made that, you know, we were saying it's exactly like, yes, but then by the time we got to this court and the opinion had already been released, we had come in a different vantage point on the contract itself, consistent with some of our earlier positions in relation to um, the fact that it was a little bit more uh, UDC case. It, it's here was the problem UDC case, and I think this is the biggest problem. There was a question as to whether the monument was owned by a private entity or by the municipality or the county, right? And that was, I think, a big issue in my mind, and one of the reasons, because of that question, if the Monument Act did apply, which I think it does, then they wouldn't have standing because it would be a private monument and private property because those are excluded under subsection C of the act. So I think that this court can further explain potentially a private right of action under the Monument Protection Act and what that would look like. Also, if I could, I apologize. Well, what, what's your proposed rule on that? Because as I read the briefs and, and listen to the arguments, you agree, disagree with the logic in UDC, but I, I didn't hear an answer to Justice Allen's question about why is it wrong what the Supreme Court said just last year about the fact that in this statute, a relatively short statute, we don't have the indicia of an intent to create a private right of action. You just saying overturn a case from last year that's already been relied on by numerous lower courts, to me suggests you wanna open the door to private rights of action in a lot of different statutes. I would not. And under the Monument Protection Act, because it has not been enforced at all within this state. And just real quickly, going back to a statement made by uh, counsel for the Appalee, the city of Asheville, it said, well, we've complied with the law. No, because they want to actually destroy the monument. They want to turn it into rubble. It's about demolition. And there's a demolition contract the scope of that contract attaches Exhibit C to the complaint. So, and getting back to that question, in terms of the UDC, I'm not asking you to overturn UDC. I'm asking you to look at the facts of this case differently because they are different facts than what we had in UDC. And with this case, there is a contract which I believe gives us standing and believes, I believe also gives us the ability, at least for my client, to challenge the action of the city. Then, in relation to the Monument Protection Act, I believe we have standing. And if we cannot take that, how can we move forward? And also when we look at the can I, can I just ask you about your argument that um, there must be a private right of action because the Attorney General hasn't acted and to enforce the act. Aren't you asking us to do the job of the legislature? If the legislature agrees with you that there hasn't been adequate enforcement of this law, there, aren't there numerous options for them to uh, uh, in, uh, pass a new law giving a private right of action, pass a law giving an administrative agency oversight of this and give individuals the right to bring a contested case before an administrative agency? You know, this is sort of all sorts of variety of statutory enforcement tools that we see throughout the statutes that the legislature has put in place. Why would it be the job of this court to decide that because the attorney general hasn't enforced it, um, we should allow a private right of action? And I'm not saying that that is my, the only anchor of my argument. The anchor is the contract. We have the ability under the contract to take this action. And then we also have the ability to challenge 
the application 100-2.1, which I don't believe the city has correctly followed. And then when you um, look at this matter, I guess what it comes down to for me is that this group, unlike the UDC, had a contract. This group, unlike the UDC, expended personal funds. And yes, there are folks that live in the hinterlands in North Carolina that are not in Buncombe County, but the mailing address was not a mailing address, it's actually a home address for Mr. Roberts. He is the, still the president of the 26th North Carolina. I said that earlier in my argument, so I wanna make sure there's no confusion as to that. And he is a resident of Buncombe County and there are members who live in Asheville and are members who still, other members who live in Buncombe County. <laughs> I'm at an end, so. Thank you, council. Thank you so much. Okay.